I should like to read for your consideration the words which are to be found in the book of the Acts of the Apostles in the ninth chapter and the first five verses. The first five verses in the ninth chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus. And suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Now I want particularly tonight to deal with that last verse of those five verses, the fifth verse in this ninth chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles. And he, Saul, said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. I invite uh, your attention, therefore, once more, in the case of those who attend here regularly, to this extraordinary and remarkable event which is recorded in these five verses, namely the conversion of this extraordinary man, Saul of Tarsus. This man is undoubtedly one of the most remarkable men that the world has ever known, judged from every standpoint, from the standpoint of ability and native power, from the standpoint of his uh, influence upon the lives of others. He is undoubtedly one of the great men of all times. But as I've been explaining, we are looking at him, and looking at his life story, and especially at this turning point in his life story. Because, as he himself was never tired of saying, it is one of those great object lessons, or one of those great illustrations, if you like, or examples, of what indeed does happen to one when one becomes a Christian. That is our primary interest in these matters. We are interested in the men. Let's confess it freely. Let us again admit from this pulpit that we are unashamed hero worshippers of these men. And yet I say that even though that is true, I'm calling your attention to him not for that reason, but because in studying his case, we do find ourselves face to face with the central cardinal principles which govern this whole matter of being a Christian. Now, let me put it to you like this. Look at this myth. The thing that stands out about him at once is that a tremendous change took place in his life. 
Here he is depicted at the beginning of this chapter as a man breathing out threatenings and slaughter. A man in a rage, a man in a temper, a passionate person who was going out on a special journey in order to arrest people and to harm them and possibly to bring about their death. Undoubtedly an unhappy man. A man with a problem, a man who's fighting, fighting himself and in a sense fighting the whole world. It's a picture of a man in a state of turmoil. And yet whenever you hear the name Paul, the Apostle Paul, you don't think of a man like that, do you? Whenever we think of Paul or wherever we, whenever we hear the name Paul, we rather think of the sort of men who was able to write that mighty noble passage which we read together at the beginning out of the eighth chapter of the epistle to the Romans. We think of a man who, though he was surrounded by difficulties and problems, a man who can say quite truthfully that we are led day by day as sheep to the slaughter, a man who was persecuted and tried and beaten and molested and half killed many times, a man who in spite of all that can say, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. A man who though he was face to face with death and in prison could say, we are persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the man we think of, isn't it? Well, now, what a change. From being unhappy and full of complexes, if you like, and disturbed and turbulent, he becomes this man who knows a peace that passeth all understanding, as he puts it. A man who face to face with all the problems and the battles and the difficulties of life can say, looking at them all at their very worst and darkest and starkest, nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Now, my friends, I'm calling your attention to what happened to this man on the road to Damascus. Because it is the thing that tells us and explains to us how Saul of Tarsus became the Apostle Paul. How the man passed from that first condition into the second condition. How the man who was unhappy and wretched became one of the happiest, most composed and balanced persons that this world has ever seen. That's why I'm calling your attention to this. Because, as he himself, I say again, was never tired of saying, it was as the result of this thing that happened to him as he was going down from Jerusalem to Damascus that he became this new, this different, this glorious man whom we honor and whose memory we revere as the Apostle Paul. The change was tremendous. And the question for us to discover is this. What was it? Can it happen to us? The answer at once is it can. If it couldn't, I wouldn't be preaching in this pulpit. I wouldn't be calling your attention to it. It is because the Christian faith, the Christian gospel tonight, 
is here in this world to tell men and women that what happened to Saul of Tarsus can happen to them that we preach at all. Now then, we meet in a difficult world. Remembrance Sunday, yes, that's it. It reminds us of wars and bloodshed and carnage and bitterness and hostility and rivalry and jealousy and threatenings and slaughter. Oh, everything that characterized the life of Saul of Tarsus before this mighty thing happened to him. That's the sort of world we are living in. There are troubles round and about us. I needn't waste your time by reminding you of them. I'm certain that you wouldn't be where you are at this moment if you were not aware of them. If there were no troubles in this world, you see, there'd be no need of a chapel. It's because there are troubles and because we all know that there are troubles that we even begin to consider these things. There are troubles outside us, and God knows there are troubles inside us. Breathing out threatenings and slaughter, something within him, a vile spirit, a foul temper, something antagonistic, a principle of antagonism. It's in us all, every one of us. I'm not going to waste time in arguing that. If you say it isn't in you, I'm sorry, but I've just got to say this. I don't believe you. And those who know you best agree with me. It's in us all. This spirit of rebellion, antagonism, hatred. It's here. And coupled with that, a tendency to go wrong rather than to remain right. To go down rather than to go up. A liking of the illicit and the prohibited. Slaves to lusts and passions. We all know. There it is. The world outside, the world inside. And the great question confronting us all is, how can we be delivered from all this? Is it possible for us to become like this Apostle Paul? I say it is. Well, how did it happen to him? What happened? Well, I want to make a number of points this evening. Here's the first of them. The change took place in the apostles' condition not because the conditions outside him were changed, but because he was changed. Now that is absolutely vital and pivotal. Here is this man, I say, who was like that now, so happy and so calm and so collected and so rejoicing in the midst of tribulations. What's made the difference? Are his circumstances changed? Has somebody suddenly wafted a magic wand? Has this man suddenly been introduced to some illusion where all problems and troubles have been banished? Not at all. The Eighth of Romans tells us that that wasn't the case. We are accounted as sheep to the slaughter. All the day long he was surrounded by these Famine, pestilence, nakedness, peril, sword, they were all there still, and yet he's so different. Why? Well, I say, not because they've been changed, because we've been changed, because he was changed. That's the first thing the gospel has to say. The whole tragedy of the world tonight without Christ is that it is looking for better times in terms of changing the world and the circumstances. Isn't that true? I want to be scrupulously fair. Take out this Christian message and ask this question, 
To what are men pinning their hope and their faith tonight? What hope have they of a better world and of happiness? Everybody seeking happiness. Well, the vast majority of people, in fact I would say all people practically who are not Christian, are in this position. They say, now, if only that could be put right and this could be changed, well, then everything would be all right. You see, before the war, it was, if only this man Hitler wasn't there, then everything would be all right, there'd be no trouble. Then before that, it was the Kaiser, now it's somebody else. And then we meet in conference and we say, now, if only we can get rid of this and make an agreement with that country and then uh, sort of uh, try to reduce the antagonism of the other country and so on. It's all based upon changing the circumstances somehow. That's the most fatal thing we can ever believe. But all people who are not Christian believe that. Oh, let me be simple and blunt. How often is this happening in, happening in the married realm today? Yes, they say things have gone wrong. If only I could get out of this and start afresh. It's, all, it's going to be always so different if only they have another chance and they have their second chance. Does it solve it? And so on. All along you see the tendency is to say that the troubles are entirely in the surroundings, in the circumstances, in the problems, and that they must be dealt with and they must be changed. I say the gospel doesn't say that. The gospel gives us very little hope about changing circumstances. The gospel solves the problem by changing us and not the circumstances. Another view, and it's a common one amongst the more intellectual type of person, is this. The more intelligent person has long since come to see that you're chasing nothing but an illusion when you think that you can ever make this world perfect. Really thoughtful people have long since ceased to believe in that. Well, what do they do? Well, what they say is this. They say, well, the world and life are like this. And there's only one thing to do about it, they say, and that is to work out for yourself a philosophy that will enable you to stand up to it. You work up a philosophy that will protect you against the slings and arrows of an outrageous fortune. Oh, I sometimes quote uh, the first uh, statement uh, in a book I once read, and here was the statement. It isn't life that matters, but the courage that you bring to it. That's the philosophy. They say, it isn't life that matters. They say, don't you try to make yourself happy in this world by thinking you can change life. What determines whether you're happy or not in this world, said that book, was this. Not life, but yourself. It isn't life that matters, but the courage that you bring to it. And this philosophy is very popular at this present time, this philosophy of courage, the philosophy of sticking it, stoicism. But oh, how far short that again falls of this Christian faith and its message. That wasn't what Paul had. Paul didn't just say that he was able to stick it and to bear it. No, no, he says we are made more than conquerors. He's triumphant, he's living above it, he's looking down upon it. There is a positive happiness, there's a thrill, there's a spirit of exultation. It isn't mere negative resignation, it isn't mere courage, it isn't standing up against it only. No, no, he's mastered it, he's controlling it. 
Well, now then, the point I'm making is that all that became true of him as the result of this astounding thing that happened to him on the road to Damascus. The Christian message is to this effect, that it can so do something to us that though our circumstances and conditions remain precisely what they were before, we are different, we see them differently, and whereas we were miserable, we are now filled with joy and with happiness and with peace. Peace, perfect peace in this dark world of sin? And the answer is yes. The blood of Jesus whispers peace within. It changes us, not the circumstances and conditions. Well, now then, let us go on to consider how it does that. It's all here in this incident, in this story. We began to consider it last Sunday night when we looked at it negatively in terms of that which happened to Paul himself there. He was going down the road breathing out the threatenings and slaughter when suddenly he was apprehended and arrested. And he heard, he saw a light brighter than the shining of the sun and a voice came from heaven saying, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he was made to face himself for the first time in his life, rarely, and saw himself and was convicted of sin and of a sense of shame. Ah, yes, but that was only the beginning. I ask you to come and look with me tonight at the next step, the most vital thing of all, the positive aspect of all this. It's in this fifth verse. What was it? Well, I say again, it was this tremendous experience that he had. But what is this experience? Now, here again, we must be very careful. It wasn't merely that he had an experience. Of course, he did have an experience. The most terrific experience a man has ever had. But it wasn't merely an experience. Saul of Tarsus became the Apostle Paul not simply because he had some sort of an experience. Oh, I mustn't keep you with these points, but there are many kinds of experiences that men can have in this life and in this world. I remember once reading a book, a kind of symposium written by a number of men on what they call turning points in life. And these men were able to testify to most extraordinary experiences that they'd had. As far as I can recall, only one out of all the writers claimed to be a Christian. But the others had had most dramatic experiences. Most strange things had happened. A man was walking down a street, and suddenly something told him to turn round and to go back and to go somewhere else, and he went, and that really led to his great career as an actor. Now, that was an experience, if you like. Something happened. Ah, but we are not here simply to preach experiences. Psychology can give you experiences. Psychotherapy can do that. Cults can give you experiences. People testify to the most amazing experiences, things that have happened to them, and they say, my whole life's been different ever since. Ah, but the vital thing is what leads to the experience. And that's the thing that's emphasized in this fifth verse of this ninth chapter of this book of the Acts of the Apostles. The Apostle Isaiah had a mighty, a tremendous experience, but the experience in his case was the result of his coming face to face with certain facts. Facts. And here again is something that I must emphasize and underline as being absolutely basic. Christianity is not merely an experience. Christianity is not merely that you adopt a certain teaching. 
Christianity is based solidly and surely upon certain historical events and facts. Now, here we are on Remembrance Day. We've been thinking today of September the 3rd, 1939, and all that followed it. We've been thinking of August the 4th, 1914, and all that followed it. On those two dates, a great world war broke out. Their events, their facts in history, solid facts. There's no theory about that. That isn't mere experience. There are things that have happened. We've got them in our history books. The dates are there and they can be noted. Solid facts. My friends, Christianity is as solidly based on facts as those facts. I'm not simply preaching to you that you can have a certain type of experience. I'm not here simply to tell you to take up a certain kind of teaching. As a preacher of the gospel, I am here to herald the good news and to report certain facts. And I'm here to say this to you. That the greatest fact in history is the fact of Jesus Christ. And that was the fact that Paul met face to face on the road to Damascus. And it was coming face to face with this central, pivotal fact of all time and history that made the difference between Saul of Tarsus and the Apostle Paul. Very well then. Here is the thing that we must face together. If you and I would be like this man and become like this Apostle Paul, I say it can only happen to us as we face the same fact as faced him on that road. You see, he had no choice in the matter in this sense that he was going down and he was confronted by Christ. The heavens, as it were, were rent and the face of Jesus Christ looked down upon him. He looked into the literal face of the risen Son of God. You and I are not likely to have that experience. We don't need it. It was given to this man in order that he might report it and preach it. That he might be a witness to this fact. And he sent out as a minister and witness to proclaim this fact. He wasn't sent round the world to tell his own experience. He was sent round the world to tell them about the fact of Christ which had led to his experience. And could give them the same experience. Well, now then, what is this fact? And, oh, my friend, I trust I'm making this point clear. These are not cunningly devised fables. These things which we preach are not fairy tales. They don't come out of novels. These things belong to the solid realm of history. What does it tell us? Well, let us just take the words as we find them in our text. He, Saul, said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. I suggest to you that that's the most amazing thing that has ever been said. And its effect upon the Apostle Paul, who was then Saul of Tarsus, was absolutely shattering. Shattering completely. 
There he is going along the road and he sees the light and he sees the face and he knows that that face belongs to the most glorious person that he's ever seen. He says, Who art thou, Lord? And if there was one thing he thought he'd never be told in his life and in this world, it was what he was told. I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. He knew about this Jesus. Every Jew knew about him. Everybody living in Palestine had heard about this Jesus, this carpenter, this extraordinary man who at the age of 30 began to preach. Though he'd never been trained in the schools, he seemed to know more about the ancient law. He understood the Jews' religion better than anybody else. He worked miracles. He was an astounding man. Jesus of Nazareth, a carpenter. And Saul of Tarsus had heard about him, and with all the other Pharisees, he'd hated everything he'd heard about him. He'd regarded him as a blasphemer, as someone who ought to be wiped off the face of the earth. And he was doing his best to exterminate his followers. That was why he was on that road at that moment. And yet he sees this face and says, Lord, I know you are the Lord, whoever you are, but who are you? And back comes the shattering reply, I am Jesus. That's a fact. Yes, but what does it mean? Well, you see, what it introduces us to is this. It's a great announcement and proclamation of the Incarnation. What's that? Well, it's just this, isn't it? It is an announcement of the fact that the eternal Son of God has come out of heaven and has entered into this world and into life. That's what it's saying. I, this glorious person, am Jesus. Who's Jesus? Jesus is a man. A man who lived on the face of the earth, the carpenter, I say, of Nazareth. It is the most astounding, the most amazing thing that has ever been said. It's the most unique fact of all history. A fact by the side of which all other facts of history are dwarfed into insignificance. That's not to be unfair to history. That's not to attempt to detract in any way from the greatness of history. Read your history books. There's no more delightful study than that of history. Read about your kings and your captains and your great statesmen, your mighty orators, your political philosophers. Certainly, it's all right. And praise them to your heart's content. Talk about your great generals and the great battles of history. A fascinating, absorbing theme. These facts can stand in their own right and in their own weight and let them do so. But every single one of them is only about a man or about men. It's something that's arisen out of humanity that man has produced. My friends, I'm telling you about something that belongs to a different order. Here is an astounding statement. I am Jesus. It's the whole marvel of the Incarnation. You know your great dates in history, don't you? The great turning points. But here, do you see, is a point which determines the date of every other. I say that the First World War broke out on August the 4th, 1914. Why do you call it 1914? I say the Second World War broke out on September the 3rd, 1939. Why do you speak about 1939? 
What's the meaning of all these dates you attach to these great events in history? I'll tell you. They all start where? From him. From the moment he came out of eternity into time. That's not, that's zero, that's beginning. Everything before that is B.C. Everything after that is A.D. He is the pivot, the center, the turning point of the whole history of the entire human race. I am Jesus. What's it all mean? Well, let me just tell you again the great facts. It means, I say, that the Son of God has been in this world. It means that the Lord of glory has entered into time. The controller of history has put himself under history and into history. What's it mean? Well, let me tell you the facts. It means this, that there in eternity, from eternity with no beginning, were Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the three persons in the blessed Holy Trinity. And that out of that glory and out of that perfection, the second person, the Son, Don't try to understand what I'm going to say. I don't understand it. I'm not here to preach what I understand. I'm here to present facts. And the fact I present is this, that that blessed person entered into the womb of a virgin. Somehow or another combined himself with a cell out of her body which had been prepared for him by the Holy Ghost, cleansed from sin and purified. And he was born of the Virgin Mary, born in a stable, a helpless bed. There was no room in the inn. All the rooms had been booked in all the inn. And though this poor woman comes in this condition, nobody will give up a room. Hadn't it been booked already? Why should they turn out? Somebody else might, not they. The world was still the same then, you see, as it is now. So he was born in a stable and they put his little body in a manger. They called him Jesus. Who is this babe, Jesus? He is the Lord of glory. I, I, this eternal I am, this everlasting God, is lying as a babe in a manger. I am Jesus. Oh, follow his story along. He was brought up in a place called Nazareth. His mother... And the man she subsequently married, whose name was Joseph, went up to Jerusalem when he was 12 years old, and he went with them. He was presented, and then they were going back, and suddenly they realized that he wasn't with them, and they couldn't find out where he was. They went back, and to their amazement, they found him in the temple, arguing with the doctors of the law and confounding them. Jesus, still, this boy. They said, who is he? What's the matter with this boy? What is he? Where has he got all this knowledge from? Who is Jesus? The answer is still, I 
the great I am, the eternal Son of God. Hurry through the eighteen silent years, because we know nothing about him between the ages of twelve and uh, thirty. Have you ever thought of that? Eighteen years, and we're told nothing at all about him. Adolescence, young manhood, and so on. Not a word. We simply know that he worked as a carpenter, nothing else. For eighteen years, we know nothing more than that. Who is this about whom we know nothing for eighteen years? Well, he's Jesus, the carpenter of Nazareth. But who is that? I am who I am. Jehovah, the second person in the eternal trinity, look at him, setting out at the age of 30, begins to preach. He works his miracles, he shows his mastery of the law and over everything else, and everybody's asking the question, who is this? That was the great question. My friends, oh, on a remembrance night, go home and read your four gospels. You can read them in an evening quite easily. Keep your eye out for that. Who is this? That's the question everybody was asking. Who is he? They couldn't explain him. He didn't seem to fit into the categories. He was always a puzzle and a problem and an enigma, and the answer all along is, he is, I am the eternal Son of God, and no other. Oh, you see what happened. He, this eternal Son of God, came on earth. He humbled himself, entered into the womb, was born in utter abject poverty. He suffered those silent years. He begins to preach. He's persecuted. Men spit in his face. They deny him. He's persecuted by the religious authorities themselves who hated him. And do you remember the end of the story? They all plotted and conspired together, priests and politicians. Everybody united against him and said, away with him. Crucify him. Get rid of such a fellow out of the earth. And they killed him. They nailed him to a tree and he died. And they buried his body in the grave. But the story didn't end there. He came out of the grave. Surprising in birth, surprising in life, surprising in death. And still more surprising in his amazing resurrection. And here he is now appearing to this man, Saul of Tarsus, on the road to Damascus. And Saul asks his question, Who art thou, Lord? And back comes the reply, I, I, and Jesus, the one to whom all that happened, the one who's been in the world and has lived as a man and as a carpenter and who suffered and died and was buried and was in a grave and entered into hell, I am Jesus, I'm back here again. I've come back to the point at which I left. That's the staggering, startling fact that confronted Saul of Tarsus breathing out threatenings and slaughter on the road to Damascus. But my dear friends, we can't stop at that. The next thing I must ask is this. Uh, well, if this is Jesus, why did he ever come into this world? What was he doing here? That is the fact. And that is the basic fact of Christianity, that the Son of God, I say, has been in this world. But why did he ever come? What's the meaning of all I've been saying? The question, I say, arises quite inevitably. You can't just say, the Son of God was once in the world. If you're intelligent, you must say, well, if he has been here, why did he come? And he himself, fortunately, has answered the question. He said, the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which is lost. 
The Son of Man, he said, is not come to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. What's he mean by all this? Shall I translate it? The Lord of glory, the second person in the blessed Holy Trinity, came on earth and did all this for one reason only. And that was because of man's condition. Because of your condition. Because of my condition. Because of the condition of the whole of mankind. This was the position. God had made the world and he'd made it perfect. He'd set man in it and man was meant to enjoy the life of paradise, unfortunately. He listened to the suggestion of the tempter. He rebelled against God. He asserted his own will. He became egocentric. He inflated himself into the position of a god and fell. And he brought misery and unhappiness upon himself. As Paul reminded us in that eighth of Romans, man not only brought misery upon himself, he brought misery upon the whole creation. The creature, the creation, and the animals were made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him was subjected the same in hope. Man dragged down the universe with him. Everything has become war and bloodshed and discord, and everything I described to you at the beginning. That's the condition of man. In other words, the world is as it is tonight because men and women are trying to live a life independently of God. The first man did it and the others have all followed him. And there is the world, fallen, no longer blessed by God, left to itself and left to its passions and its sin and all its troubles. There it is, a living hell. Why has the Son of God come into the world? Because of that. Oh yes, but because of this in particular. Man has not only reduced himself and the world to that condition. Try as he will and as he has, he cannot get himself out of that condition. Man has been trying to get himself out of his predicament from the very moment of his fall. Read your Old Testament, you'll find it. Read your Greek philosophers, you'll find it. Read the other religions of the world, you'll find it. Mankind has been trying to get itself out of this morass. It's been trying to raise itself with all its mind, its ability, its ingenuity. The whole world has been trying, it's still trying, but it's absolutely failed and it's still failing. And the Son of God came into this world because of that. Now I say this stands to reason. If man could save himself, why should the Son of God ever have come? If men can really tackle the problem, why did God send out his own Son? And why didn't he spare him from the cross? My dear friend, the answer is obvious. God sent his own son into the world because of man's complete and total failure. Man by nature in a state of sin is totally unable and incapable of saving himself and his world. And it was because of that the Son of God came and did all he did. And this is the marvel of Christianity. It's the glory of the gospel. That the very God against whom man had sinned and against whom he rebelled had pity and had mercy upon men and sent his own son to deliver that very rebel and the son came 
and he took unto him human nature. He identified himself with us. He stood side by side with us. He suffered poverty. He suffered shame. He suffered contradiction. The whole world spat in his face, and yet he did it, and went even through death in order to deliver the rebels. That's the message. Saul of Tarsus knew about Jesus. He knew about his teaching. He knew about his miracles. He knew about his death. He heard about his resurrection. He didn't believe it. He there thought it was a fact. And if it's a fact, that must be the meaning of the fact. I am Jesus. I, the Lord of glory, have been down as Jesus. I've gone back again. But it also then leads me to this statement, doesn't it? That his coming into the world has achieved its purpose. Who art thou, Lord? I am Jesus. I see. The carpenter, the little boy, the preacher, the one who was nailed to a tree, the one who died, whose body was buried in a grave. Are you Jesus? I am Jesus. Very well then, you must have risen from the grave. And his answer is, I have. I'm speaking from heaven. I'm speaking from glory. I am Jesus. What's it mean then? Well, it means this. Not only is his resurrection a fact, but it is an absolute proof that God is satisfied with what he did while he was in this world. I say that he came to deliver men. What did that involve? Well, here are some of the things it involved. Before men could be delivered, men must render a perfect obedience to God. He must honor God's name. He must honor God's law. No man has ever done that. All the saints of the Old Testament failed to do it. Here is one who came to do that. He stood by our side as men. He said, I'm going to give God perfect obedience in order to deliver you. And he gave perfect obedience. No one could point a finger at him. There was no sin in him. He gave God's law a perfect and a full obedience. He satisfied God's demands positively in every respect. Ah, but something else was necessary. As the result of our sin, we are in a state of guilt. And our guilt must be punished. Our sins must be punished. But the punishment of sin is death and banishment from the face and the sight of God. And if we endure that, we are done for, we are doomed to all eternity. Before he can save me, he must somehow deliver me from that guilt and from that death which I so richly deserve. And you see, he's done it. He took my sins upon him and he bore their punishment and he died my death. Yes, before he did that, he'd done another thing which I must do. There is Satan who tempts me and who's stronger than I am. I can't be right with God until I'm delivered from the clutches of Satan. Satan must be conquered. And while he was here in this world, he did conquer him. Though he was tempted in all points like as we are, yet he was without sin. And as he tells Saul of Tarsus on that road to Damascus, I am Jesus, what he's really saying is this. Satan has been conquered. Death has been conquered. The grave has been conquered. 
He's been through death. He's come out the other side. He's been in the grave. He's burst asunder the bends of death. He's been in hell. He's come out of it and has led captivity captive. He's mastered all. He's conquered everything. I in the glory and Jesus still. But I've conquered man's every enemy. I've satisfied God's every demand. And I am now living and existing at his right hand, sharing with him again the glory that I shared with him before the very foundation of the world. That's what he said. It's all in these words. I am Jesus. The man belonging to history is the Lord of glory. And he came and did all he did for the reason I'm giving you. I'm giving you. Do you see the inevitable conclusion to draw from all that? Saul of Tarsus, with his acute brain and his masterly understanding, he saw it in a flash. If you are Jesus, and I believe it, he said after he'd seen him, there is only one conclusion to draw. You are the Savior, and apart from you there is no salvation. And he began to preach that at once. You see, it follows of necessity, as I say. If a man can save himself by living a good life, if you can fit yourself for heaven by just putting your back into it, and by being religious once a year or a few times a year or something like that, and doing good and so on, if that makes you a Christian and makes you religious... Well, then I say in the name of God, why did the Son of God have to be a babe in that manger and suffer shame and die upon that cross? My friends, it's not logic, it's nonsense. These things are facts. And what they proclaim is simply this, that Christ came and did all he did because it was the only way whereby you and I could be forgiven and could be reconciled to God and could be made children of God and could have a new life and could be filled with the Spirit of God and could have this outlook upon life that Saul of Tarsus was given there and then and could be more than conquerors over everything that is set against us. That's it. You see, to be happy and to master this world depends upon one thing only, and that is to know God and to be blessed of God. And there's only one way to that, and that is to believe and to accept this truth, that the Son of God left heaven and came on earth and did all I've been describing in order to bring you to God. The facts are still the same. They're still there. But you say, I don't believe that. I don't believe this, what you've been telling us about the Trinity, and about the Incarnation, and about this Jesus, two natures in one person. I can't accept it. I don't believe it. Saul of Tarsus couldn't. He rejected it all. He hated it. And he had very much more powerful arguments than you've ever thought of. And he was very pleased with himself and very self-satisfied. But you know, when he had one glimpse of that blessed face, his little case 
vanished out of sight. And mastered and charmed, he cries, Who art thou, Lord? And when he's given the answer, he believes it. It's inevitable. The face itself is its own authentication. My dear friend, the facts remain. This self-same Jesus is there still in heaven where he was when he appeared to Saul on the road to Damascus. And he is looking down upon you. And what he's saying to you is what he said to Saul. I am Jesus who came into the world to die for you. Why will you go on living that miserable life? Why will you go on rejecting me and denying me? I am Jesus. Believe me and let me save you. Do you know, my friend, the day is coming when you and I and all who've ever lived shall see Jesus. It's a fact. As certain as the fact of his birth, his death, his resurrection, as certainly as this happened to Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus, a day is coming when every eye shall see him. I mean now, not in a vision, I mean face to face. And those who believed in him will rejoice in it. Because they shall then see him as he is for the first time and rejoice in him. But the others, according to the scripture, when they see him and know that Jesus was none other than this Lord of glory, will cry out unto the rocks and to the hills, fall on us and hide us from the face and the wrath of the Lamb. And every eye shall see him. Yea, and they that pierced him. What a solemn, what an awful thought. And you know, when they look at him, and when they see his glory, they probably will cry out and say, Who are you? And back will come the devastating answer. I am Jesus. Oh, my beloved friend. Do you hear him saying it now? He's saying it to you. I am Jesus who died for you that you might live. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party, and second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.